Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association. With me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to further understanding of the Great War and have around 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 28th of March 2022 and this is episode 248. On today's Dispatches podcast, I talk to author and historian Dr Bill Mitchinson about his latest book of no earthly use that explores the role, contribution and effectiveness of second line territorial divisions on the Western Front during the Great War. This book is published by Helion. Bill spoke to me from his office in Manchester. Bill, welcome back to the Dispatches podcast. Before we start, could you tell us about yourself and how you became interested in the Great War and particularly the territorial force? Yeah, thanks, Tom. Um, Well, as far as myself is concerned, I've just fairly recently retired from an academic post with King's College uh, at the Joint Services Commanded Staff College at Shrivenham. My my interest in the Great War really stemmed from my great-uncle Jack. Uh, he'd served throughout the war with the London Rifle Brigade and uh, was a frequent visitor to our house as I was growing up. And uh, unlike my maternal granddad, who had been in the tanks, Uncle Jack was always uh, very willing to talk about the war. And so from a, a very early age, it was, um, I'd, I'd always wanted to see where Jack had fought. And that led to the first trip uh, to the battlefields, which was a walk around Arras in the, the Arras area in the um, summer of 1971. Um, Jack was a, a long-serving territorial, and um, as in most places of any size in the 1950s, uh, there was a TA depot in Crawley, uh, Crawley Newtown. Ours was a Remy one, and uh, we used to watch them washing the vehicles as we walked back from um, Saturday morning pictures and stuff like that. And we thought they were almost godlike creatures, and sometimes they even gave us the odd penny through the fence. So we thought, well, I, I want to be in the territorials. It was basically as simple as that, I think. So why did you write your latest book on second line territorial divisions? And we'll obviously come to what second line territorial divisions are in a minute. Yeah, um, I've, I've had this, as I say, a long term bias towards the, the territorial force and the territorial army. And when interest in the Great War sort of began its revival in the 1970s, I, and I admit I'm totally biased in this, I didn't think that the TF was getting much coverage. Um, that and the link with Great Uncle Jack, as I say, decided me to write the book on the London Rifle Brigade, um, which is one of London, London Regiment's most exclusive battalions, and followed that by a uh, book on the very unfashionable Oldham territorials. Um, then there was a- other work. I did a trilogy on the territorial force and the volunteer force and tried to show, I think, some of the sort of organisational, political and functional difficulties uh, which were experienced by the auxiliaries. Uh, Hellion asked me to write a divisional history, so I chose the 48th South Midland because there hadn't been a post-war um, a book written on it. And I decided then that rather than write a sort of straightforward account of what it did and where it did it and so on, I tried to assess its performances in, in different battles by looking at the doctrine and the training and its changing composition and so on. And I think that seemed to work quite well. So I thought I might use the same approach to what were the largely neglected second information. And so the concept of the current book 
uh, of no earthly use have really developed along similar lines. And it just seemed an obvious thing to do, I think. The difficulty was obtaining the sources. Um, there are many books, of course, published over the last three decades or so, which look at personal experiences of men in the trenches. But I wanted deliberately to avoid um, using that approach. Tied and uh, tried and tested, though it is. And I, I decided I'd try to come to some conclusions using wherever possible, only war diaries of the, the units, the divisions of the corps and the various armies in which they fought. Um, but if you think that each um, division had something like almost 40 separate command staff unit war diaries, it would be practically and economically impossible, basically, I think, for someone who lives in the north. I, I, I calculated that um, Q on a Saturday is a 428-mile round trip in the car, so it was going to take forever um, to do it until I got hold of the CD-ROM with the war diaries on it. So that made the, the entire project feasible, and that's when I got on with it. So let's look at some background. What is What was the territorial force, and what, what is meant by a second-line territorial force division? Right, yeah, the the... Territorial force was, of course, founded in 1908. Um, but when war broke out, the second line TF units began forming in August and September 1914. Now, the 14th line, as they became to be known, i.e. the existing territorial force divisions and the yeomanry brigades, uh, quickly filled to an establishment with recruits in, in August. And it was realised that if they were to go abroad, they would need reserve units, which would continue their anti-invasion role and home defence role, uh, and a unit that would be able to supply drafts to the first line. And so by the time the second line began to recruit, i.e. these were going to be the reserve formations, they faced stiff competition from the forming new armies. Uh, the government and the war office favoured the new armies considerably over the territorial force for a number of reasons. But many thousands of individuals opted to serve in the TF rather than join the more, what I usually describe as the sort of flamboyant Kitchener armies. Um, but the official bias towards the new armies meant the second line were slower to reach establishment, to be clothed and equipped and so on. But as their first line units went abroad from late 1914 onwards, the, the embryonic, as they were, second line replaced them at their war station. And gradually the individual units were accommodated within what became replicas of their parent units, 14 divisional structure. And then, of course, comes the third line units began forming by the end of, uh, with the purpose of providing trained drafts for the first and the second lines. So what divisions does your study cover? and What areas were they drawn from themselves? Yeah, when, when I began thinking about attempting a book on the second line divisions, I I didn't want it again to be a straightforward account of their activities. Um, of those divisions which deployed to the Western Front, the, the 58th, 2nd, 1st London, uh, the 60th, 2nd, 2nd London, 62nd, the 2nd West Riding, they, they had quite reasonable divisional histories published after the war. Uh, the 59th, which was the 2nd North Midland, had a very poor book, while the 57th 2nd West Lanx, the 61st 2nd South Midland, and the 66th 2nd East Lanx didn't have a, a divisional history written at all. 
The remaining seven divisions, which I'm largely ignoring in the book, uh, were either broken up or during the war were made into training or home service divisions, but they, they lost their territorial affiliations, essentially. I thought that perhaps the best way of, of dealing with the wartime experience of the active divisions was to look at the problems that had in finding a role, um, achieving some sort of divisional coherence and identity, and then picking a number of battles or engagements by which you could analyse their battlefield performances and then hopefully come to some conclusions about what today we call uh, fighting power. And how have historians and history viewed these units, if at all? <laughs> yes, well, I, like, I like the if at all bit. Um, um, well, while not ignoring the territorial force, there was a much greater emphasis uh, by writers to look at the experiences of the, the new army. Um, there were a few modern accounts of territorial force units issued or published, but uh, they tended to concentrate on the first line battalions. Um, a few second line units did publish an account of their activities soon after. Uh, but in general, there was a, a sense that I, I, th I think that the second line units were sort of Johnny come lately. And because they served overseas for a short period of time, they were not as of as much interest um, as their parent or they or the new army battalions. And also, I think there's their somewhat checkered existence in the early years of the war also tended to suggest that they were not very good divisions when they did eventually sail. Um, added to this, I suppose, was the belief among many of the second line men themselves that they were pretty much Cinderella units uh, who were unloved and nobody's children. <laughs> they reminded me in some ways of the risk of um, bringing in a football analogy, a bit like Millwall, you know, no one loves us. And that was the problem I think they faced. Um, for, for some, this, this belief was maintained even when they'd um, reached France. And how did um, contemporaries view them? I'm sort of thinking about how they were viewed by the army and maybe the rest of the territorial force, but also by MPs and uh, sort of opinion leaders during the First World War. Yeah, that, that, that's a really interesting question. The, um, the War Office, I, I genuinely think, didn't really know what to do with them for their first couple of years of existence, because um, the Army of the War Office was trying to build a, a homogenous army with no distinction between terms of service and so on, which, of course, the territorials had. They could get out of things and, they, and opt for home service, for example. And pre-war, the, the military authorities never particularly liked the TF. They believed it to be a um, largely a waste of money, very inefficient, hopelessly untrained, and unlikely really to be of, of any re real practical use. And by mid-1916, the War Office had, had managed to largely to sideline the role of the Territorial Force County Associations, and with the introduction of conscription, had thereby eliminated some of the TF's sort of unwanted quirks and idiosyncrasies. But the, the TF did have some powerful supporters in the, in the Commons, and there were, um, and it, it was in the Commons that um, uh, Major Claude Hamilton, later, I think it was the Grenadier Guards, who was an MP, used what, what I used for the title of the book when he complained in the Commons that there were thousands of men, he said, who were perfectly unfit and are of no earthly use for military service. Now, he wasn't alone in that sentiment in, in 
believing that. They were described as broken reeds. In other words, they couldn't be trusted and, and no use to man or beast. But while others agreed with those sentiments, uh, some did so because they are actually supporters of the territorials and they wanted the War Office to act and make the Second Line Divisions viable and deployable formations. Uh, for its part, the, the government didn't feel it could completely alienate the territorial force by merging it with the regular uh, and continue to insist all the way through. I mean, it was a bit like speaking with forked tongue, but it, all through 1916, the second line was fulfilling a, an essential anti-invasion role, according to the government. There, there were from time to time occasional vague suggestions in the House that the divisions would soon, in inverted commas, be deployed abroad. Um, the 61st South Midland and the 60th Second Second London did, of course, go to France in the summer of 1916. But the, the hopes of the members who wanted a, a fighting role were repeatedly quashed as their, their trained men were almost, almost automatically siphoned off as drafts to their parent or other units. There was little chance, obviously, of trying to build a, a sense of purpose or an identity within those divisions. And I think as well, because the second form line formations were so often hugely under strength, they were easy pickings when the politicians and the war office decided that quite radical changes had to be made in the training system at home. Um, although ostensibly, ostensibly supportive of the second line, and praising of its function, uh, Tennant, the Undersecretary of State for War, declared that the role had to change and become more relevant to what the War Office was actually trying to achieve. And so in the autumn of 1916, the decisions were made to reconstitute uh, seven of the divisions and keep them at home, but to send a further, uh, further five, which would take the total to seven, uh, to France in early 1917. So why did it take so long to deploy these units once sort of the invasion threat was sort of obviously seen to be not a major issue, obviously post-Jutland? Um, what, yeah. what problems did these divisions actually face in becoming equipped and being ready for deployment? Yeah, it's the indecision um, which about what the second line's role should be was partly to do with, as you say, this alleged continuing public concern about invasion. Um, the war office had dismissed it, as you mentioned, they uh, dismissed the threat before the war and acknowledged that the, there might be some strong raids on vulnerable coastal points and perhaps the arsenal at Woolwich and docks and things like that. And yes, raids were still a possibility, but the assessment was that the training divisions and the forces inside the UK would be able to see off any excursion. Um, but the, nonetheless, I think the politicians were concerned uh, about public opinion and felt that to denude the country of the possibly or supposedly, I should say, trained men of the second line would be politically risky. Um, and, but I think the event which prompted the, the, the deployment, which really convinced the war office and the government had to do something with them, was the French demand in the autumn. Uh, of 1916 for additional British support and the idea being that we would be able to take over a longer section of the line. And again, if you put it into context, the, the last of the new army divisions to sail had been the 40th division that had landed in June 1916. Uh, two Australian ones landed then as well, but 
Um, there'd been no fresh divisions uh, since uh, June uh, 16, and not surprisingly, the French complained. Um, as I said earlier, the 61st and the 60th had gone. Uh, 61st quickly was quickly involved in the disaster at Fromel, an event which I think not only condemned that division's ability, but I think also pretty much confirmed the belief of many uh, critics of the territorials that the second line would not be really of any great worth. Um, the 60th Division, or the, the second second London, it was still contained actually, even in uh, when it deployed, contained many genuine territorial force volunteers who had purposefully enlisted in a battalion of the London Regiment of their own choice. And they spent, uh, once they got to France, they spent a fairly quiet time in the Arras sector before being shipped off to the Near East. Um, but once the decision had been made to deploy several more of the second, they were rapidly brought up to establishment. And although they had over the months, as I said, lost many of their trained men and they, many of the original volunteers, in early 16, they had, had had huge influxes of Derby men and also the uh, home service territorial volunteers who had been in the provisional units since the spring of 1915. These men had now been caught by the conscription acts and so were liable for foreign service. And many of the Derby men and these former home service chaps were to stay with the new battalions for months before they actually deployed. And here's where sort of some of the irony, I think, comes into it, that um, when the divisions did go abroad, the second line had large numbers of men who had actually been in the army for longer than most of the draftees who were being shipped out to the established divisions at the same time. And, and there were still uh, uh, handfuls of original September 1914 volunteers in them who had been successfully retained by their battalions and who, despite the departure of their original comrades, original sort of friends who joined with them, they had retained something of, of the territorial force ethos. That, I think, is, is quite apparent. Um, the statistics show, I mean, when you look at them, though, that when they did deploy, the battalions bore little resemblance in their composition to the personnel of, of their original formation back in 1914. The bulk of the men may have been recruited, for example, from Lancashire and then they were in the West Lanks or the East Lanks Division, or they might have been recruited from London, but not necessarily from the traditional uh, catchment areas of where their first line battalions had, uh, had recruited. Um, certainly, I think the, the great majority um, were not TF volunteers, of course, but most of them had been trained now according to the, the doctrine that was emerging. And because they had been together for reasonable length of time, as I say, with the Derby influxes and so on. And they'd managed to develop something of a battalion, a brigade, and, and even a, a divisional identity. So what happened to these units once they were deployed to France? Can you give us a sort of brief overview of their operational history up to the armistice? Yeah, um, well, the, um, when they went abroad, the 59th, the Second North Midland, had spent some time in Ireland during the East Rebellion. Uh, suffered a few score dead there, but with no trench accl um, acclimatization together with the 61st, uh, sorry, the, the 61st was quickly engaged, as I say, from, uh, from L, and then went into um, 
sort of semi-open warfare when it followed with, uh, the German withdrawal to the Hindenburg Line, largely along the Arras-Saint-Quentin Road. And the, the 59th and the 61st worked uh, together on, uh, on that, um, not pursuit, it was a uh, advance, as it's called officially, towards Hindenburg. 57th and 66th both had a fairly quiet time in the Givenchy sector. 58th went into the trenches where its first line, the 56th, had suffered so badly on the 1st of July 1916. And then it later joined the 62nd, the 2nd West uh, Riding, in an attack on Bullecourt in May. Um, on its arrival, the 62nd had been thrown onto the uplands above Bocor on the Somme and made very mucky and uh, muddy and slow progress, um, advancing behind the German withdrawal. Um, none of the second line fought in the main Arras offensives or at Messines. All of them except 62nd were involved in 30, uh, some several times in fact. Uh, three were at Cambrai. Uh, on the 21st of March 1918, the 58th, 61st and 66th were part of 5th Army, while 59th was part of 3rd. All suffered badly, but uh, 59th and 66th were pulled out of the line in May 1916 and tasked instead to train the American divisions before being reconstituted, and they re-entered the battle in the summer of 18. 59th became what was officially though a B division. And how do you rate their performance as combat units in both defensive and, and offensive operations in 1917 and 1918? And what factors underpin your, your view? Mm. Yeah, um, well, besides the, the political controversies and the difficulties generated by and continuing development of the second line, I think when at home, I wanted to look at whether they really deserve some of the opprobrium that was directed at them during the war. So I decided, as I said, I think I, I couldn't take every engagement in which they're involved, but decided to examine several of them and attempt to measure their operational methods, um, their success or failure alongside those of the divisions working beside them, um, in, who were working in similar environments or on similar terrain. I wanted to see, for example, if the, the periods out of the line for training purposes were similar, uh, how they approached what today we recognise as the, the conceptual, the physical and moral components of fighting. Uh, and, and then by examining whether they were training in and working towards the contemporary doctrines laid out in the SS palettes, as well as uh, to use as, as some sort of gauge as well, and considering them in the light of the modern principles of war, current NATO and current British land doctrines, and what we know today as the um, opera, as operational design concepts. I'd, I'd, I'd hoped that by using these, I won't be able to come to some conclusions as to their actual fighting work. And because the actions at Fromel and Bullecourt um, are well known, I decided largely to ignore those. Uh, at Fromel, 61st had not even had time to acclimatise to the front. It was an entirely green division and was expected to take strong enemy defences with virtually sort of just very little artillery support. And the whole offensive was doomed before it started. At Bullicor, the 62nd itself thought afterwards that it hadn't done particularly well, whereas the 58th was more successful, but was a lot more fortunate in the timing of its actual attack. 
Uh, I looked at how several of the divisions developed their raiding patrolling skills during the spring and early summer of 17, and how the RE and the field companies, um, for example, uh, and, and how the artillery had bedded down before. Um, 60th and uh, 66th divisions, I think, looked to have done particularly well in their raiding strategies, whereas 57th was not thought by Haking. Of course, you can tend to take with a pinch of salt whatever Haking might have thought about anyone or anything, but he didn't think that the 57th had done uh, very well. Um, while they were following the, the German withdrawal across the devastated zone, 62nd demonstrated a, and had to a very dogged perseverance. It didn't do anything dramatic because it was wading through mud most of the time. Uh, the 61st showed some good adaptability and improvisation uh, as it uh, went across. Uh, 59th was more cautious and was very clearly more on a learning curve than I think the 61st was. And, and once the Hindenburg line was reached and 59th got itself into an awful mess at Le Verguier, uh, the GOC division, the GOC of a brigade and a CO of one of the battalions were all sacked for that. Um, the 61st, which was working on the flank of the, the 59th, also thought that the, um, the North Midland had performed pretty badly. Uh, but the 61st was not without mistakes itself, but it did tend to um, show a better understanding, I think, of its operational environment than did the 59th. Um, e examining the, um, the offensive operations during 3rd Ypres allowed for several, I think, worthwhile comparisons. Uh, with the exception of 58th on 20th of September, the Battle of Menin Road, the second line tended to be used in the not-so-well-known operations. Um, the planning, the cooperation and coordination of the different arms, uh, the work of the engineers, sometimes the pioneers. Now, of course, uh, the, the, they did not have pioneers appointed until March 18. Um, I looked at the work they did to see whether they were following existing doctrine or were prepared to demonstrate initiative or improvisation and so on if things did go wrong. Uh, the 58th did very well on the 20th of September, as we know, but not so well in three later engagements. Um, 61st did not do well around Kier Farm and particularly the battery position, so, so much so that the GOC himself thought he was going to be sacked. Um, 59th did make a good advance and then had its reputation spoiled somewhat by a withdrawal, which was probably not entirely its own fault. Uh, 57th and 66th were both used only once in the campaign. Um, there are, as, as you probably know, reports that uh, a patrol of the East Lancashire's actually managed to get in Passchendaele village in October. But the, the operational planning by Corps and Army, together with the physical conditions, worked so much against the division and its neighbour in, in the attack then, which was the first line 49th. Um, Cambrai, 62nd, of course, had a very good first day, but then tended to get bogged down again, like everybody else around Ball on Wood later on. Um, but the uh, 59th um, executed a, a, what was really quite a textbook disengagement and withdrawal to Fleckier um, during the German offensive at or counterattack at Cambrai. And the 61st fought again a, a little known, but really quite hard-fought and dogged rearguard around the Vacuier on Welsh Ridge. I found that um, 
particularly interesting the way they managed that one. And the main defensive operations, though, of course, for the, the divisions came on the 21st of March. Um, on the day itself, 58th Div only had one brigade involved, and that soon came under French command. Uh, 61st and 66th fought well, um, but their, like everyone's, prepared defensive schemes were soon or very quickly redundant when once the Germans began the attack, and command and control devolved down to unit and subunit level. And with the, the forward zone posts quickly destroyed and the defenders either killed or captured, um, battalions in the battle zone fought well until they were eventually overwhelmed. The survivors then continued to fight back towards and beyond the Somme crossings in the following days, but they were largely as ad hoc units rather than sort of divisions in inverted commas. The, the surprise to many on the 21st of March was the 59th Division, though, at uh, Bulukor Norai. Uh, they, it did do exceptionally well, but lost very heavily, um, except for one brigade had a you know, sort of remnants left, but the, the division had been virtually destroyed in one day, but it hung on quite gallantly. Um, I think, as I suggested earlier, when, when they did deploy, I think the, the general consensus was not a great deal was going to be expected of. Um, there were detrimental comments by individual soldiers and similar mentions in, in some unit war diaries about having to fight alongside uh, a second line division and the, the sentiment being that, oh God, they're second line and then what are we going to do? Sort of thing. And the war office, as I said, certainly didn't think much of them. Um, but when you look really hard and you're trying to find ill words said about them, it, it's not as easy as perhaps you might think. And um, whilst only rarely condemning a particular uh, division's worth or fighting ability, core HQ or core GOCs, they, they did occasionally put criticism down on paper of the division, but none to appear to have done so for any second line. And the, the evidence suggests, I think, that they did probably perform better than those in high command assumed that, that they would. Um, I, I think also that perhaps the, the second line may have been consciously or unconsciously equated with second division or perhaps even second rate. But there's no reason why they shouldn't have performed as well as the bulk of the British divisions, because there were few divisions which could consistently be relied upon to uh, gain and hold their objectives. Um, and by 1918, all the BEF's divisions were comprised very largely of conscripts, all fought according to the established doctrine. And they had similar periods in and out of the line for training and developing their fighting power. So why should they be any different, essentially? But I suppose what I've tried to do in the book is to show that the second line divisions um, on the Western Front uh, actually were of some earthly use, I think, to counter what um, Hamilton said. And they made their own contributions, as did all divisions, uh, to the eventual success of the, the Allied armies. And my final question is, where can people learn more about the book and your work? Um, <laughs> dare I say it's Amazon? <laughs> um, I, I know it's for sale there. I've, I've seen it myself. Um, and actually, most of my other 
books are there as well. But um, I might I recommend if anyone is interested in getting, go to Waterstones and get them to order it rather than go to Amazon. Um, keep, keep Waterstones going, please. They're a vital part of our town centres. <laughs> but thank you, Tom. That's, that's really good. And thank you for asking me to do this. I much It'll, appreciated it. It's been a, a privilege as usual. So thank you very much. Thank you. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Buthworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time.